My name is Mark Rolson. I'm a Navy pediatrician. I retired actually in 08, but I'm still working at a Navy hospital in Washington State. And I'd like to speak to you today about how to um, perform and how to organize yourself when you're dealing with the critically ill or injured child in a limited resource setting. And we've all heard about the uh, global under five mortality and 99% of deaths of children under five occur in limited resource settings. So of all the children under five that die in the world, 99% of them occur in developing countries. 50% occur in Africa. About a third of them occur in South Asia, which includes India and 17% in other regions of the world. And the single leading causes of death in children under five, number one, pneumonia, 1.3 million children every single year die of pneumonia. Diarrhea, 0.8 million children die every year. So these are not complex illnesses. These are simple illnesses. And if we can get our hands around treating these simple illnesses, we can get our hands around reducing global under five mortality. 7.6 million children die every year. And these are 2010 statistics. And by the way, those are hard statistics to get. And there's a, usually that lag there. Infectious causes of under five mortality, 64%. So if we can get the infectious treatment to these children, we can save lives. But how do we do it with the resources that we have in the, re in the regions where we are working? Deaths occur outside the vision of health services, mainly in the home, with the majority occurring in the poorest households, in the poorest communities. They're forgotten. We don't even collect these statistics. We don't even see these children. They never get to anywhere to be counted as dead. Now, we've all been uh, reading and hearing about the United Nations Millennium Development Goal 4. How many have heard of that? Okay, and that's the redu uh, reduction by two-thirds of the under-5 mortality by 2015 um, from 13 million de annual deaths in 1990. So we're going from 1990 levels at 13 million annual deaths down to a 2015 goal of 4.3 million annual deaths. So we've, we have a ways to go. And there are now articles, there's a handout at the door if you didn't get that. There are, there are now articles that are, are being published if you're reading Lancet, we're not going to make it, we're not going to make it, we're not going to make it. We're what, 3.3 million annual deaths behind. So here is the um, latest uh, World Health Organization statistics. You can see where we were in 1980 and where we uh, are at about, uh, 2010. So Africa leads everyone. And then we have South Asia in the green and we have Eastern Med Mediterranean and then we have the total so that's where you get in 1990, 13 million, and then 2010, uh, uh, about 7.6 million. And then you can see down here the Western Pacific, Europe, and the Americas. So Africa leads the way. So there is a handout there at the door. You ran out of the handouts, okay? Here's one more. Okay. There you go you want to come and get it. Um, and if you want to give me your email, I will. It's also on the website for the conference. And if you give me your email, I will email you a copy. But we have a long way to go. Can you, do you get the picture that we're kind of behind the, um, the eight ball here? And why do you think we're behind the eight ball? What? Okay, HIV. What else? Well, we're going to go into that. We're going to go into why we're behind the eight ball and what can we do maybe to, to catch up. We need to, we need to, we're, we're, 
here. We're headed for here and we need to catch up and make that goal of 4.3 million by 2015. Really, we need to make a goal of zero, don't we? All right. So the combination approach is needed. So prevention. We're, there's a lot of... There are billions of dollars now that are being spent or allocated by the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations, Gavi, and the you know Bill and Melinda Gates, and, and et cetera, for preventive efforts. And these are very, very, very vital and important. And I am not speaking down to that. They're, they're very necessary. Uh, but uh, preventive efforts, uh, early exclusive breastfeeding till six months, clean water hygiene. I just spoke about vaccines. Micronutrients, zinc, vitamin A, these are vitally important and complementary feeding. But we also need treatment, obviously, don't we? Because vaccines don't get there. If, even if they, um, there's money, they don't get to the right, they don't get to the, the child. And many, how many vaccines are 100% efficacious? None. Even the rotavirus vaccine is what? 50% efficacious for severe disease, not mortality. So we need a combination approach. Obviously, that's what's helped reduce mortality in developed countries. The preventive efforts, the whole list of all the prevention that we're doing, and then the treatment. I mean, and the, uh, the treatment. We have NICUs and PICUs and ICUs and whatever to get to, to treat the child who has... You know, they've gotten the vaccine, but they're, they're in the ICU with pertussis. So we need, and that has been um, identified as a weak link in limited resource settings. Um, as, so if we want to get to that goal in 2015, we need to step it up in terms of treatment. But how do we do that when you don't have anything to work with? Okay, so let's go around this... Um, this uh, uh, circle here, um, 40% of deaths, and these are all 2010 statistics, are neonatal. So if we could somehow, so preterm birth complications, intrapartum related complications, 9%. So that's about a million babies every year. So if I don't trip over something, has... So that's where neonatally comes in. Is everyone familiar with helping babies breathe? 99% of babies born need up to bag mass ventilation for survival. Less than 1% of, new, of newborns need advanced care. Chest, that, by that I mean chest compressions, fluids, medications. So if you have... If you have your bag mask device and suctioning, you're going to make you're going to make a an, um, a significant inroad into that nine percent that those almost one million babies every year who die. So simple treatment for for this problem. So. If you haven't taken Helping Babies Breathe, that's the kind of simple course that you can teach overseas because of its simplicity. Okay, so let's move down here to, to diarrhea. 11%. Remember, that's the second leading cause of under five mortality. So we're going to talk about a little bit about treating diarrhea. Measles, there's a measles vaccine to prevent it. Oh, by the way, there's a rotavirus vaccine, the Rotorix, Rotatech, the Rotatech being the penavalent, the Rotorix being the monovalent vaccines. These are like 60 and $90 per dose in, through the CDC, but the, there's about $4 billion that's being allocated to pro, get these, this rotavirus vaccine out there. But is it going to get out there? Is it going to get to the child? So we, 1%, Measles vaccine, malaria. There's a global malaria initiative. There are there is a current trial testing 
a malaria vaccine. There's anti-malarials. There's there's bed netting, and you know all you guys know about that. AIDS. Um, are we going to have an AIDS vaccine? Well, there's a lot of uh, promising research. Meningitis. There's a meningococcal um, vaccine. And then up there, our leading cause of deaths in children under five. Pneumonia, 18%. So let me just give you a definition of pediatric advanced life support in limited resource settings. It's still broadly defined um, as emergency management beyond CPR and um, AED in children beyond the newborn period. There's been some gains in the management of severe infection and in shock. But reality, it's often, as you know, if you're working in these settings, it's often incomplete. And it's incomplete exactly where 99% of childhood deaths occur. So there's this huge disconnect. Okay, so this table just shows you that there are references. There's a zillion references out there about how deficient resources are in the pre-hospital and hospital setting in limited resource um, areas of the world. In any, we can read down the list, and I'm including prevention and disease surveillance in there, but we can read down the list of the deficiencies and we can get, we can get pretty, pretty depressed. But this, these references tell the story. These authors are telling the story how, how they need these resources in every single category where they work in the pre-hospital setting and in the hospital setting. For example, oxygen or the equipment to detect hypoxemia. This little, this little um, pulse oximeter is often unavailable to children around the world. How many of you are working in limited resource settings with children? Raise your hand. And how many have a pulse? How many do not have a pulse oximeter? So that's not a huge area, huge issue, but it is a huge issue in the literature for for uh, children. Just the means to detect hypoxemia. Okay. Okay. In Guinea-Bissau, 16% of acutely ill children die en route or while waiting for the for care. In Kenya, there's um, insufficient basic items to treat critical illness at district hospitals. So, that, so that's a fairly higher level level of care at the district hospital. And Kenya, if you if you know the world literature on on re- pediatric resuscitation, Kenya and Kemri is one of the leading institutions trying to solve this problem. But even at in Kenya at the district hospitals. They're without what they need. Uganda, one-third of mortality due to pneumonia occurs at home, and one-third of children needing referral for the hospital care receive the referral after two weeks. So imagine if you have a baby who's in respiratory distress or failure, what that means. In Tanzania, about 50% of children referred to the hospital take about two days to arrive. India, an effective transport system is non-existent. Mongolia, there's no infrastructure to implement the sepsis guidelines. You know, there's, you can get on the internet and find the, find all the guidelines you want, but if you don't have the means to deal with that, to, to, uh, um, to take care of the child with the infrastructure, what, you know, how good is that? And in Brazil, there's no services for shock in many, many areas. Okay, so um, I'm going to ask that you, can someone turn on the light and turn to table yeah, and share with your neighbor if you don't have a handout. I uh, didn't realize there's going to be this many. Table one, it's basically organized like this, and if you, I can get you this handout. Uh, it's also on the website from, for, the, for the conference. But I've organized this levels of ALS capability in terms of, uh, three levels, uh, level one and two being pre-hospital, levels two and three being hospital. And what are the capabilities in terms of your uh, facility? The level one being 
a, the home or a community health office with a community health worker, level two being um, a rural hospital or a primary health center, and three, the district hospital where there might be an emergency treatment center, a hospital ward, and maybe even a, an ICU. Okay, and um, so it's just a it's just a table of what are filling in the boxes. So um, let's move to um, how oftentimes our disease spectrum in limited resource settings. You can turn that light off there now. Um, is different. So if we approach the child according to the way you know the pals the pals courses, we need to give a 20 per kilo bolus to any kid in shock. If we approach that child according to guidelines that we learn in developed countries, we could kill the child. And that's what I've learned in teaching pals overseas to missionaries over the years. They say, this, this, this is not applicable to what I'm doing. And um, it kind of uh, helped me to understand that this PALS course that is so vital, I'm not downplaying the PALS course, um, or any other life support course that originates in, de- in developed countries, but they need to adapt to the location. And there is a different disease spectrum in children. For example, we all you probably are familiar with the Maitland article in New England Journal of Medicines. These are children who had severe infection, many of them with malaria, and shock, so poor perfusion. They were given bolus fluid resuscitation, either normal saline or albumin. And it was actually associated with an increased 48-hour mortality. These children were hypoxemic. They were anemic. They had high ADH states. And so fluid, adding fluid to a severely anemic child, adding fluid to a severely hypoxic child, adding fluid to a child who's already in a high ADH state is going to kill the child. And in the PALS course in um, uh, one time last year, um, one of the pediatricians said, I had stopped giving boluses to my kids with malaria long, you know, long ago because they had seen the light, that that was not helpful. So, but if we apply that you know, 20 per kilo fluid, the child has shock, 20 per kilo of uh, normal saline, we're going to kill the child, potentially. Dengue shock, kind of, is it the opposite? Well, the literature kind of says that it is different than malaria, but we need, to, we need more studies on that. Early aggressive fluid resuscitation with judicious fluid removal and early colloid may be preferred in children. So that's a different animal. So, but we don't, in the, these traditional courses, we don't get into the nuances of what's going, really going on out there in the third world and um, the, the developing world. And so we have to be aware of a different disease spectrum. Uh, the malnourished child. Children have more critical presentation in different causative organisms, higher mortality. So if we just throw fluid on them, that 20 per kilo of fluid, until, you know, how much, is, how much fluid do you give? Enough fluid. No. Not in the child with severe acute malnutrition. It may have adverse effects. So be, we, need to be aw- we need to be aware of the child that we're treating. Micronutrient deficiencies. The vitamin A deficient child, the mortality risk due to diarrhea, measles, malaria is increased by 20 to 24%. Zinc deficiency, mortality risk due to diarrhea, pneumonia, malaria is increased by 13 to 21%. So we need to supplement with vitamin A and zinc. And in diarrhea, we need to even treat with zinc. While they're having the diarrheal episode, get the fluid on board if they're in shock and get the zinc going. Measles. Pneumonia and diarrhea are common comorbidities in critically ill children. They suffer higher mortality risks. And uh, that synergy with vitamin A deficiency with measles and then HIV, uh, different causative organisms, higher rates of resistance and polymicrobial disease. So we treat the child with HIV differently, with measles differently. 
Okay, now what the literature has um, some clues about simple, inexpensive ALS interventions. Look at this emergency. This is kind of the PALS course that's out there put on by the World Health Organization, the ETAC course. The Emergency Triage and Treatment Course. It has, in Malawi, it has reduced under five mortality by 50% at a cost per child of $1.75. So if you can organize yourself with a triage system and an emergency, some kind of guide, emergency care guidelines, you can, you can do a decent job in reducing under five mortality. Not that expensive. That's what we like. Simple things that will go a long way. An outpatient pneumonia treatment, $13. Implementing an oxygen system, with a, and by that I mean a concentrator and pulse oximetry, $51 per child. It reduces, it's been shown, to reduce under five mortality by 35%. An inpatient pneumonia treatment, $71. Look at this. If you can get oral rehydration solution and zinc, to an outpatient with diarrhea to cost about 30 cents per person. And it, virtu- it brings the death rate to near zero. There you go. But it's not getting there. It is not getting there. It's being mixed inappropriately. I mean, you, all the problems you can imagine occur. Diarrhea out- inpatient treatment uh, oral oral treatment as an inpatient, uh, and that may be an NG tube or something, $75. Okay. So we've talked, let's focus um, on inf- the uh, pre-hospital setting. We've already said what we already know, there's insufficient resources. There's knowledge gaps among lay caretakers for recognition and treatment they can recognize the pneumonia, but they don't act. So they don't put, well, the child is not right to action. Or they don't recognize shock. And then they don't mix the oral rehydration correctly. So there's all these, these disconnects, these knowledge gaps. But it's good that the, the lay caretakers are trying. And we'll get into that. And we should all move over to Dr. Lancaster's talk because he's talking about lay caretake case management. And that, what I hope to convince you, is one of the steps that is going to really help. Emergencies, which are about 10 to 20% of visits, are handled by this IMCI, this Integrated Management of, of Childhood Illness document put out by the World Health Organization with urgent referral to the hospital. So if you have a sick kid, you, you, you go through the manual, your outpatient manual, and what do I do? And it says, refer to the hospital. You're going, ooh, I wanted to know what I should do now. And maybe the child knows needs something now instead of referral to the hospital because it may take two weeks to get to the hospital. So that needs to be changed. There needs to be some pre-hospital direction for these children. In a World Health Organization document, the IMCI document. And as we said, there are deficient referral processes and inadequate transport services. There may be the, the donkey in the cart that we can get in three days. Uh, so there's all this literature out there you know, crying out for, you know, the, the issues and the problems in limited resource settings. But really, on the other hand, pre-hospital care is expected by the local community, just like we expect good health care in our lives. And it, there are a couple studies that have shown that good pre-hospital emergency care can is cost-effective, and it can be provided effectively by non-medical personnel. And it requ- but it requires basic supplies and equipment, which have been, this, this guy has actually request, requested it for level one facilities. And there, are, there, are, there is literature 
that shows that if community case management can make an impact on under five mortality reduction in Mexico for acute respiratory problem for a, ch- a child under one year, case management. In other words, if we wait for get to get all the doctors and nurses to do what we need to get to that um, United Nations Millennium Development Goal four of 4.3 million annual deaths in 2015, we're, we're going to need 4 million doctors and nurses. So it's not going to happen, right? So all the more reason for case community case workers to get, they're invested in their own community. And it's being shown now in paper after paper, in Ethiopia, in Pakistan. In Pakistan, they took uh, case workers, took the, the current... World Health Organization guidelines for severe pneumonia, which is give them a dose of SEPTRA and then refer them to the nearest hospital. They said, no, we're going to give amoxicillin and treat them at our in our community, keep them in the community. And they compared to the current standard, which, by the way, has just been changed, and I'll get into that, to the current standard at the time of their, their study, they showed improved survival by community case management. This is in Pakistan. Um, so it's, it works. It's effective. It's practical. It's, it's what's needed. So community case management. In Mexico, diarrhea, um, case management has reduced um, under five mortality by 36%. If you're under one year, 34% under five. And then in Southeast Asia, in Africa, pneumonia, 36% and 36%. It's, it's, it's a start. So what do we need to do to solve the pre-hospital um, issues? We need to define minimum standards for emergency care. You know, we can't set up ICUs in the pre-hospital setting. In the, you know, next to the hut, we'll have the ICU. We need, but we need minimum standards. Should we get oxygen there? Should we get a nebulizer there? Should we get uh, etc.? You know, suctioning, NG tube kind of thing. Integrate the advanced life support guidelines into IMCI. There needs to be, the World Health Organization needs to have clear standards in IMCI for acute care. So you can get time sensitive um, treatment to these critically ill children. We need to equip first-level responders for basic stabilization. We need to determine more specific referral criteria. It's, IMCI is very sensitive, but it's, very, it's not specific. So you have, it leads to over-referrals to the referral destination. So over-referrals. So they get there, and now why did you come? Kind of, I mean, if you've worked in an emergency room, you've probably heard that. Um, but it's true in the in over there. It's a, it's not specific. So everybody goes. If there's a sick kid, everybody goes to the hospital. So let's define it. Let's be more specific in the referral criteria. And utilize. You know, we need to be creative in terms of uh, our emergency transport. So let's shift quickly to the hospital setting. And again, there's a, there's a lot of literature out there, authors speaking of how, how poor it is, how poor quality is given in, to children at their hospitals. So that's no, um, that's, there's no mystery there. And 50% of deaths in hospitalized children in limited resource settings occur within 24 hours of admission. So... That kind of, it doesn't really speak of hospital care. It speaks of what ha- did or did not, likely did not happen in the pre-hospital setting. And by the time they get to the hospital, they're almost dead. So that's why we need to kind of shift, if we can, if we do have the resources or the thinking, we need to implement some simple, inexpensive things in the pre-hospital setting before they get 
to the hospital where they're going to die within 24 hours. Okay, proposed solutions. There was a nice article in pediatrics a couple years ago about strategies to improve overall quality of care at the hospital level in low-income countries. Nice article. This ETAT course, this PALS course for the limited resource world needs to be updated. The last version was 2005. Now, in the the American Heart, and I'm not touting the American Heart Association, but they do put, put out a lot of these courses. They update them. The good thing is that they update them every five years. So all the experts in the world on pediatric resuscitation or adult resuscitation get together. And it's actually an international group. They have the ILCOR body, which is the international committee, liaison committee of resuscitation. And then they they decide what is going to happen. And then then they get they turn out these the guidelines in circulation every five years. And then within a year, you get the new ACLS course or the new PALS course or whatever. Uh, but the ETAT needs to, I mean, that's great. Remember it reduced under five mortality in Malawi by 50%. You know, that's a good start. It needs to be updated with current literature. And then um, consider some kind of, uh, and don't think about your current ICU, put that image out of your head, but what kind of limited resource ICU that is practical uh, to local needs and limitations um, could be set up. So consider that. And there is some some literature about that. So, all right. So we all know that one of the things that these courses teach that is good, if you've taken any of these life support courses, is they teach a systematic approach to... um, the child, both in assessment of the child and categorization of illness. So it's largely missing, um, and a lot of different authors talk about that. We just don't approach, in, in our settings, in the limited resource settings, we don't approach the child in a systematic way. And we need to approach the child in a systematic way. Because then you're not going to miss anything, you know, Thorough assessment is going to lead to thorough categorization, which is going to lead to effective, appropriate management. So it obviously, just like in the developed world, early rec- it, the, the systematic approach improves early recognition of critical conditions, treatments, and outcomes for particularly pneumonia and shock, probably from diarrhea. So, hello. We know this, and there are there's a lot of literature out in de- the developing world that says, "Hey, we gotta we gotta improve this because this is going to help us." So again, I've said this mostly that most of the courses uh, for advanced life support originate in full resource settings, and the exception is this ETAT. They've they've created an ETAT plus course. Uh, in Africa, and it's spreading slowly throughout Africa. And um, these these courses that are available are um, mostly applicable to full resource settings. And and as I said, they lack universal applicability despite their. Everyone quotes the these courses, and I'm not going to. You know, there's an. They all seem to have. Um, you know, there's. A, they have a lot of similarities between them. The Apple's course in the UK, the PALS course in the United States. I, it doesn't really matter. Um, they, what is good is that they teach a systematic approach. And, um, but they're not, they need to change. They need to be adapted to limited resource settings if they're really going to be, um, get that universal uh, applicability. And um, the other thing is that these courses, there's a lot of skepticism overseas about these courses because even though they have all this nice way of teaching, they, there's, no, there's not a lot of literature that demonstrates effective outcomes. So what would be helpful is an ABCD approach, a standardized system of category, 
categorizing critical illness and then treatment of specific emergency and trauma conditions. And again, they need to uh, expand their usefulness by um, an evidence-based application and um, it should be taught, these things should be taught in the pre-hospital setting as well as the hospital. Okay, now I'm going to have you turn on the lights and I want us to go through table two. So here, this gets into some of the nuts and bolts of where we're, we're going. Um, I don't, if you don't have the uh, handout, again, I can get that to you if you want to come to me and it's on the, the website here. But what I've done is I've listed the unavailable resource, oxygen, you know, and then what could be a substitute resource for you. So if you do not have an oxygen cylinder, you can use an oxygen concentrator with a power supply. Uh, a pulse oximeter, you could use clinical indicators of hypoxemia. Uh, and there's, there is um, some references there. If you don't have a ability to get a chest x-ray, you can use clinical indicators of pneumonia. Um, and there's actually a clinical tool predicting treatment failure of severe pneumonia. If you do not have an oxygen mask, um, you could use, there's literature about the superiority of using nasal prongs over nasal pharyngeal catheters. Um, if you do not have an oxygen mask with a reservoir bag, try nasal CPAP. Uh, if there, you do not have a nebulizer, you could try an MDI with a spacer device um, that's used uh, from a, a liter, a 500 ml um, soda bottle. Um, if you do not have mechanical ventilation, you could try bubble CPAP. And there's a literature here that's uh, recommended as a substitute resource. Uh, and non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. Obviously, you're going to need a power supply there. If you don't have bubble CPAP, then this new, this um, pressurized room air technology, basically just taking a, um, a, uh, a filters and pumps and pressurizing room air. And remember, now there's a lot of literature about starting, especially with newborns, starting with room air versus 100% oxygen. With a, a bubble CPAP, you need 100% O2. So with room air technology, you're just pressurizing room air, and that has been shown in Bangladesh to be very effective, and it's about $200. You, you, need to, you can power it with a, a car battery, and um, it is a fraction of the cost of bubble CPAP. So there you go. If you wanted to try some positive pressure ventilation on your child with respiratory distress or failure, that might, that might be helpful to you. Uh, if you don't have racemic epi, you could try L-epinephrine, one, one, epinephrine 1 to 1,000, 1 milligram per ml. And there's, there's references for each one of these things that you can look into and, you know, get doses and all kinds of things if, and see me afterwards if you're interested in, in, in the dosing. For shock, if you don't have a blood pressure cuff, how many of you have an age-appropriate blood pressure cuff for all ages? So imagine, okay, that's good. How, imagine how unavailable that might be. So what is a good surrogate for hypotension in where you do not have an age-appropriate blood pressure cuff? The lack of peripheral pulses. So you check the radial pulse. It's not there. You assume the child's hypotensive. Okay, so that's pretty inexpensive. I like, that's good. Um, a mixed venous saturation, kind of a, you know, something that might be used in the, an ICU setting. It's, there's a paper that shows that shows that a mixed venous saturation of greater than 70% is equivalent to a capillary refill of less than two seconds. Our, our quote-unquote definition for, for delayed capillary refill for shock. So that's, that's fairly helpful um, if you're thinking about mixed venous saturation in, over there. I don't know if you are. Uh, <clears throat> Intraosseous needle. You know, you can, there's all kinds of substitutes for an intraosseous needle. A large bore IV, you can use a spinal needle with a stylet. 
You could use a bone marrow needle. I don't know if you have, if you don't have an IO, I'm not sure you have a bone marrow needle. But again, there's surrogates for an intraosseous needle. Uh, <clears throat> dopamine by central line, you can yes, you can use put dopamine into a peripheral line. Um, you can try the external jugular vein. It's a it's a fairly uh, if you if you are putting in lines and that's a that's something to think about as a uh, with a low complication rate for central venous access. If you if you really are able to do that, and if you're not, then forgive me for even mentioning it. But if you kind of are in that have that ability to do that, then that's why I'm mentioning these things. I'm probably offending some who have no thought of ever putting in an external jugular line. But if you're kind of there, then that's why I'm mentioning that. So forgive me if I'm kind of speaking over your capability. Um, if you don't have epi, 1 to 10,000, which is we're getting now into these, these rare things that we don't probably can't treat very well or thoroughly in the, thir- in the, in the developing world. But if we don't have epinephrine 1 to 10,000, we can take epi 1 to 1,000 and just um, take add 9 mLs of normal saline to the 1 mL, and you've got epi 1 to 10,000. Okay? For, bra- for the bradycardic child with pulse and poor perfusion, for SVT, if you don't have ice for vagal maneuvers or synchronized cardioversion or amiodarone excuse, or adenosine or procainamide, um, you can try digoxin and uh, for both termination and uh, maintenance. Um, and you could try propranolol for maintenance for SVT. So those quinid, um, uh, excuse me, uh, digoxin is um, perhaps more available in the um, overseas than perhaps adenosine or amiodarone. Amiodarone isn't available in, in every hospital in the U.S., but that, those are some substitutes. So DIG and um, Indorol for SVT. For VTAC with a pulse, you could try quinidine or propranolol. And there's um, literature. There's old literature on this. This is in the literature. This is the way we used to treat these VTAC. It's, that literature is still available. So we're kind of going back to this old literature. But if you, you have... If you want to do something and you have the ability to do something and you don't have amiodarone, then you may, um, you might try quinidine or you might try uh, propranolol. Uh, manual defibrillation, if you don't have a manual defibrillator, you could try an AED. And epi to 1 to 10,000, you can dilute epi to 1 to 1,000. Okay. So most of the guidelines um, are empirical that are in existence and they're not evidence-based. For example, avoiding O2 masks for free flow delivery using small fluid boluses than blood in malnutrition and shock or broad-spectrum antibiotics um, in sepsis. And the justification is for empirical guidelines are pragmatism. You know, you can't... We don't have... um, enough oxygen to, to give a child a mask. So that's why we use nasal prongs or lack of evidence. You can shut that light off for just a second there. So we, we need evidence-based um, advanced life support guidelines for both for management. For example, how do we treat fluid um, or the child with severe infection and shock with fluid? We talked about malaria is different from dengue. So we need definition. Antibiotic management and sepsis. Management of in virtually every area in the, in the severely um, um, malnourished child. Sepsis, fluid resuscitation, nutrition. And we need training guidelines, airway skills, and implementing an oxygen system with concentrators and oximetry. Now, I'm going to just go through the, um, just by title, so we have some time for, for questions. But there are some guidelines out there. There's been a technical update to the um, hospital handbook, the, the pocketbook. And I'm just going to 
flip through these because these are in your handout. They go through all the indicators and the, the guidelines and they're there for your help. So uh, we have now... Um, and so the World Health Organization is doing what they should be doing. They should be looking at the literature and coming up with some consensus guidelines. And so now we have if indicators for hypoxemia if you don't have a, of a pulse oximeter and when to use a pulse oximeter. Um, indications for um, starting oxygen therapy, they're now different according to where you are in altitude, Okay. And delivery systems, nasal prongs are preferred in children less than five years. So now we have a de definition. Um, uh, we've had a definition of very severe pneumonia, these clinical signs, and now we have changed recommendations for antibiotics for very severe pneumonia. You can read through those. Severe pneumonia. Again, the definition and the antibiotics. And this is what... Those women caseworkers in Pakistan did. They said, instead of giving scepter and referring, we're going to give them oxicillin, and they improved survival in their communities by using oral amoxicillin. Non-severe pneumonia, the definition, antibiotics, and referral criteria. Please, um, non-severe pneumonia and wheeze the um, antibiotics thankfully, are not recommended as the cause of virus, is typically viral. So I thought that was kind of cool. We've all seen different guidelines out there for fluid resuscitation in the child with diarrhea. And uh, so they divide this up into no signs of dehydration, which is a fluid deficit of less than 5% body weight. By the way, when you are 4 to 5% dehydrated, that's when clinical signs of shock appear. So you're already 40 to 50 per kilo, mLs per kilo down in, in your deficit. But if there's, you give ORS replacement of ongoing losses and then and here's your recipe after each loose stool. You measure it out exactly. And you give it by spoon, etc. If there is some dehydration, 5 to 10% body weight, you're down 50 to 100 mLs per kilo, you can give your oral rehydration solution, obviously orally, or you can put it down the NG tube. So 75 mL per kilo over four hours, and then you replace losses. Severe dehydration, deficit greater than 10% body weight, again, this is the World Health Organization in 2005. There's different ways to do this. You've seen the, probably seen that literature. Here's the recipe you'll see in the, in the hospital handbook. And it doesn't really matter as long as you're getting this fluid. You're going to give crystalloid first in the child with severe dehydration. And then um, you restore, you repeat as needed boluses to restore normal tension, which is a detectable radial pulse. And then if, if IV therapy is unavailable, you can give um, oral rehydration solution down the NG tube, maybe even orally, uh, 120 mLs per kilo, et cetera. Then with improved level of consciousness, you can start the oral or NG fluid and then replace losses. Cipro for bloody diarrhea, treatment failure, use ceftriaxone. Follow guidelines according to local sensitivities. Zinc, we talked about zinc. Get zinc on board right away. And the dosing for acute diarrhea. Sepsis initiative, that's out there. 64% of children under five who die have an infectious cause. So the, there's a, that whole sepsis initiative that's going on worldwide. At zero minutes, recognize decreased mental status and perfusion. Maintain the airway established vascular axis according to there it is, the PALS guidelines. Um, at five minutes, you give, you get, um, by five minutes, you're pushing fluid, isotonic fluid, give over 60 mLs per kilo. Well, what if the child has malaria and is severely anemic, hypoxemic? So be careful. Correct hypoglycemia and correct hypocalcemia. And then at 15 minutes, you make the decision, is this child fluid responsive 
um, or is it um, fluid refractory shock and then you get your dopamine on board? That's out there. It's, it's going around the world trying to get the word out that sepsis is a major cause of death worldwide. And get, here are some guidelines. I'm just saying what's out there. I'm not saying what's practical. I'm not saying what's absolutely been defined by an international body of experts. But this, these guidelines that I'm listing here is what is out there. It is a, a first step. Empiric treatment for meningitis. There you go, your third generation cephalosporins empirically. But if there's no resistance to chloramphenicol and beta-lactam antibiotics, go for it with chloramphenicol and ampicillin or benzyl penicillin. Typhoid fever, Cipro, treatment failure, ceftriaxone, or azithromycin, follow guidelines. Um, severe acute malnutrition, uh, benzyl penicillin, um, and ampicillin, and then amoxicillin, and then, and, gent- and then gentamicin for those, that E. coli and Klebsiella that infect the child with severe acute malnutrition. Okay, now, the last part of the lecture, uh, if you can turn the lights on, we're going to go over tables three and four. And this lists um, the different, it categorizes respiratory problems into upper airway obstruction, lower airway, lung tissue disease and disordered control of breathing. And then what do you do by your level? What can you do? So we open the airway uh, with suctioning, positioning, maneuvers, head tilt, chin lift, jaw thrust, adjuncts like nasal and oropharyngeal airway. Antibiotics for diphtheria, epiglottitis, bacterial tracheitis, or pneumonia. Um, bronchodilators cortico, uh, for asthma or bronchospasm, corticosteroids uh, for asthma, and epi for croup and airway edema, pulse oximetry, um, free flow oxygen, bag mass ventilation. Um, CPAP, uh, etc., and then medications, Lasix, aminophilin, bronchoscopy, and tracheoscopy, according to your, uh, you can't fit this all on, on the slide, but it gives you, according to your capability, how you organize yourself according to a respiratory problem and what things you can do to get yourself, get yourself going. I apologize for those of you who do not have this table in front of you. Um, Table four is or organizing yourself by um, shock, the different types of um, shock, hypovolemic, distributive, cardiogenic, and obstructive. And again, down the line for your interventions, using low osmolarity oral rehydration solution, better than standard WHO solution. Uh, the Resomol for the child who has shock and is um, so has um, malnutrition, zinc, for the child with diarrhea, antibiotics for bloody diarrhea the, and cholera, so starting that azithrom- single-dose azithromycin for cholera, seps- and antibiotics for sepsis, v- vagal maneuvers, crystalloid warming techniques, um, dextrose for hypoglycemia, whole blood for severe anemia, the child with an, a, a hemoglobin less than four, um, epi, um, and uh, corticosteroids and Benadryl for anaphylaxis, vasoactive therapy for hypotension, myocardial dysfunction, uh, car- cardiac failure, Lasix for CHF, epi, antiarrhythmic therapy, synchronized cardioversion, and then ne- needle decompression and tube thoracostomy. The last thing I'd like to say is that if you're using one other thing, the PEARS course, I, I'm going to tout this because this is kind of pre-PALS. This is, teaches respiratory and shock. It does not get into all the cardiac. So if you really wanted a course, and the videos are very, very good. You have video of critically ill children with respiratory problems and shock. It's, um, if it, it kind of sticks to the main thing, and that's what we're, we're concerned about doing. So um, I will tout that as, uh, the, and it's, there's a brand new edition of that. Um, the other thing is if you are um, using these, you know what this is? Everyone knows that this is the Braslow tape. So you measure in your emergency, you measure from this end, so the crown to the heel, and you come out. 
and you determine that this child is so much, so many kilos, and then you have all of your doses and your equipment sizes here. It's a very nice tool. Be careful about using this overseas. Okay? So this is the 2007 edition has been replaced by the 2011 edition. This is... Um, was not no longer accurate because of the epidemic of obesity in our country. So here we go in the here's the 2007 edition. It's been upticked by in the 2011 edition um, because of the underestimation of the obese child, and now it's more accurately estimates the obese child. But look where both of these fall in relation to, to the World Health Organization 2006 growth standards, the, the weight for length standards. You can see that the new, the 2011, here's the median, here's positive three standard deviations for weight for length, and here's minus three standard deviations for weight for length. That's the definition by the World Health Organization since 1999 for severe acute malnutrition, minus three standard deviations for weight by length. So if you're using if you're using the 2010 11 you're pretty good to for a child that is very well nourished who's at the median but look you're going to overestimate the child with severe acute malnutrition for either one either one the 2007 kind of comes kind of approximates the malnourished child interestingly enough but if you're using the 2011, maybe you need to have both of them. No. But um, just to be careful when using, the, using this beautiful Braslow tape, it doesn't necessarily apply to the world, to your setting where you have malnutrition. So be careful about that. And um, that's... That, and the, the statistics are for for girls um, 0 to 59 months. By the way, the Braslow tape goes all the way up to 36 kilos. The World Health stopped publishing weight for length in, um, in, their, in, 2000, in 2007. And they, for, for the adolescents, they, they're now using BMI instead of weight for length. So we don't have these curves end here at about 115 centimeters of length. Uh, and about 17 kilos. So we don't have the, the, I can't plot that out. But be careful when you're just using this overseas. Um, and that's all that I had. I hope that this met your need. Again, I'd like to get those handouts to you um, if you need them. And uh, do you have any, uh, have any questions? Yes. Uh, comment and a question. Yeah. Uh, first comment is I just downloaded the, the ETAT guidelines just sitting in here. It's immediately available from World Health Organization. Right. Less than one megabyte. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is it's easier to do. But just a question for you personally, Mark. Aren't you still the lead author for the PALS manual? Uh, I was an editor in the, the 2005. So. But not the current one. Yeah. Yes. Any other questions? Yes. I just want to thank you. If you can organize yourself, A, B, C, D approach, so crucial, and then categorize by certain respiratory or, and then just leave it there. I mean, we cannot treat cardiac arrest over there, right, unless we're very, very specialized. But we can do something if we, but we need that framework. And that, those community caseworkers need that framework. You can get, you can teach an A, B, C, D approach to a, caseworker who's not doesn't have a PhD in something microbiology you know you can do that and they are saving lives over there they're not they're defying the world health and they're making they're making inroads into mortality because they're 
they they want to help their community, and that's where the that they're invested in their own community. So there's simple things, a simple solution for I don't know if it's called a simple problem, but there are simple, inexpensive things for relatively simple problems. Respiratory shock, pneumonia, diarrhea. You can really we can really make an inroad there. Any other questions? Okay.